What's up, everybody, and welcome to another Boardroom Out of Office podcast. This is number 31, Reggie Miller. And uh, with me, as always, my right-hand man, Gianni Harrell. What's up, Gianni? What's up, what's up? So we got a, a guest today that I know you're excited to talk to. Super. Another acclaimed entrepreneur, an incredible success story, but also just like the sneaker king. Like we call PJ Tucker the sneaker king, and he is within the league. But with what this man was a part of building, he also will get the crown as sneaker king. So without further ado, please welcome to the show the founder of StockX, Mr. Josh Luber. Josh, what's up, my man? What's up? Thank you very much for having me. It's fun to be here. It's very apropos you'd have all those sneaker boxes behind you, bro. It feels ne- it feels right. I, I showed Johnny this before you sat down, but this is the better view over here. This is a... Uh... Oh, my God. So, what yeah. is that? Closet or just like... It's my, it's my home office slash sneaker closet slash room. So It's above my garage. So my garage is a two-car garage. So that's the size of the room. And it had like carpet and drywall and, you know, I built out the rest of it, so... It's incredible, man. That's uh, that's definitely a dream. That's that's goals right there, bro. You build your own sneaker platform, have an office filled of vintage sneakers, bro. Hey, man, we were looking for houses. My wife had, you know, things that normal people want in a house, a yard and garage and bedroom. I was like, I need one thing. I need a room to build this. So thank <laughs> God this house like, met those other like constraints because otherwise it, it could have been an issue. But yeah, it was perfect. So. so you live in Detroit now, right? But you grew up in Philly. And like most of the people we've spoken to and Gianni and I have been fortunate enough to speak to is most of the successful people at an early age had their mind and their eyes on the prize. Like you started a business at the sixth grade. Were you that kid as as a young man? Were your parents entrepreneurial? What was the environment like growing up? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, so, um, so, you know, um, you know, Gary, obviously, Gary Vaynerchuk, right? So the first time I ever met Gary uh, was probably like 2015. We were starting StockX. We hadn't launched yet. And first time I ever met him and we were at New York in one of these like super um, like typical New York lunch counter spots, you know, and I was there first and he came next to me. And he's like this close to me, right? Like face to face. And, you know, he's exactly as intense in person as he is online. And the first thing he ever said to me was he goes, oh, you're about my age. Baseball cards are candy. And I was like, uh, <laughs> I was like, oh, I was like, well, both. Right. Because like that was the hustle when you were like a kid. And so, yeah, I mean, I was buying and selling baseball cards as a kid and I used to sell gum in sixth grade and blow pops in ninth grade. Like, you know, like it, it was, I used to hop the fence behind my house and go to the Acme, buy candy and gum and sell it in school. I was doing that. And then baseball cards like that. That's what, what you did. in you know, in 1988 or whatever. So. If you were wired that way and yeah. you were wired that way. Yeah, yeah. Today, kids have so many more. Like, you know, you can flip shoes on StockX. Like, there's there's a right app, spots, all the sorts of stuff. But like that was it back then. So, yeah. I mean, when we were growing up, if you had a business at that age, you were like the odd one out. You There was probably something wrong with you. Now, if you're not oh, even yeah. thinking about crypto in the sixth grade, <laughs> you're left out of the party already. I know. Um, I know. And so sneakers obviously were a big part of your life as a kid, I assume. Yeah. I mean, look, we, we know when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, the only two things that I cared about were, were baseball cards and sneakers. And, um, you know, baseball cards were more accessible. Um, and, I, you know, I have the exact same story as everyone else from a, a sneaker standpoint. Right. Like I grew up playing basketball when Jordan played. 
I always wanted Air Jordans. My mom would never buy me Air Jordans. As soon as I got some money, I bought Air Jordans. Like, we all have the exact same story, you know, through there. But, I mean, I still have some of the shoes that I wore in, in high school and middle school. Like, you know, I mean, th they were so sacred to me. Like, I never would throw out a pair of shoes. I mean, they look like, you know, I've been wearing them for 20 years, too. But, um, yeah, there was nothing more important at that age. You know, it's funny. The people that kept things, it's not random. There's That's a skill. I'm not saying it's the skill that can take you somewhere but it's part of an ultimate skill set like I was entrepreneurial as a kid as well I definitely didn't I collected trading cards but I also like was a bookie right I've talked about that a yeah. lot so I wasn't thinking but the quick fix so like trading cards as soon as I was off of it I remember trading my whole collection but you had a little bit of or a lot wherewithal to say you know what like this stuff that I'm passionate about this was really part of you so you kept your collection, I assume you kept your cards, right? You kept everything. Oh yeah, yeah. It, it's it's funny that you zeroed in on on that, which is like nobody really hits that, right? But I keep everything. Like you know, my parents were always like, "You got to throw this shit away." My wife's like, "You got to throw this away." I keep everything, and it's just like anything I think is even somewhat relevant. Like I keep it in boxes and stuff, and I've been doing it since I was a kid. It's amazing, man. How old are your kids? My uh, daughter is eight. My son will be six in a month. Are they collecting things or is it all digital for them? Well, it's certainly not digital yet from a, a, a thing standpoint. I mean, they, they're still experiencing things, right? Yeah. So like they'll see something they've never seen this thing before. So like my daughter, I, I, I can actually start to see it in her room as like everything will be on her desk and start going like that. You know, you yeah. know, my, my son, he just wants to sit in front of the video game all the time. So, you know, maybe they'll maybe they'll diverge like that. Collecting is so cool as a kid, man. Gianni, did you collect things? What did you collect as a kid? I mean... I didn't really collect when I was a kid, but when I got older in high school, I started really appreciating sunglasses. Mm. So do you have vintage pairs? Like you think about it like that? I have, I just have these classics or old styles that I just not co collect or still have, but just that's what I, that's what I was about at the time. Cause there's definitely that thing. Like when you're collecting as a kid, that rush that's, there's something ab about that that is like business minded. You know, you start organizing, you're trading with your friends and the guy who has the or the girl who has the best collection, you know, they're the CEO. You look at them when within that world, you look at them as somebody. But we all gave up on it. We all got rid of our shit. Um, and the ones that I kept have no value. Like literally the ones I specifically kept have no value. Um, so when you went to college, you went to Emory, right? Yep. yep. My, my, bro my brother went there and Scooter Braun went there. Another Mm -hmm. self-made entrepreneur like you were you in that mindset in college were you thinking about your own business because I saw you got two degrees um, which is impressive because a lot of these entrepreneurial stories don't include the degree they usually include the dropping out or not going what where were you at in, in school when you got to Atlanta yeah I mean that was probably the I don't want to say a hiatus from that um, but like at that point I was just so focused on you know, living on your own for the first time and, and girls and partying and, and just the rest of like, kind of like, you know, experiencing life that I missed a lot of that. And I mean, I was, you know, I was in business school at school and I, I certainly, you know, there were, there were random sort of hustles just to, to make a couple bucks, but it was weird. Cause I, so I graduated college in 1999 and years later, I looked back at it. I was like, man, if I was four years younger or four years older, 
I would have hit the internet boom in a totally different way. Like the whole first wave was happening when I was in college and I was completely oblivious to it, right? I totally would have been in the middle of that. And then when I came out, it already crashed. And so that wasn't a thing. So the first business that I ever created after school was like home computer consulting, kind of like Geek Squad before Geek Squad, where we would go into people's houses and help them. Like the exact opposite of a, of a tech business. Mm-hmm. And it was because of this unique, you know, nuance of like the, the era and the time that it was at. But yeah, it was also like when I went to college, like my first year in college is the first time that I ever had email, that I ever had the internet, right? Yeah. So it was just a, it was a different, it was a different time. I was like right in that interesting time. So yeah, it was, it was girls and partying was, was the primary focus then. That, I mean, but by the way, that, that balance that you have is probably now that you're bringing all of these experiences in, like this entrepreneur, somebody that studied and met people from around the world, those things, when you go into this like next phase are crucial. Like you would have missed that had you just been singularly focused. Yep. Um, so the Geek Squad company, I, you, I read somewhere you sold that. Was that just like technically you sold it or was it successful? Uh, it was, um, I mean, it was, it couldn't have been uh, more the definition of a small business. I think the check was like 30 grand or 35 grand, um, which, you know, was a nice check to put in my pocket when I was going back to grad school. Um, and I basically just like sold off the client list to one of the other competitors, like in our neighborhood who was doing something similar. I mean, it was, you know, a very, but it was, but that experience where, you know, I took no salary. What happened was I went to work for a furniture company after school um, and that furniture company went through bankruptcy and I got laid off and they brought me in to tell me that I was being laid off. And I'm this naive 23 year old and they explained unemployment to me. And I was like, hold up. I was like, I get $323 a week for the next six months for nothing. And they're like, yeah, it's unemployment. I was like, hell yeah. I'm like, I'm on. And so, and, and, you know, for, for three days, I like party for three days. And then my friend was like, yo, he's like, you know, the company you're talking about, why don't you do it now? And I'm like, oh yes. And it's like, and so that was that, that business that I started. So I made no money. I ran the thing out of my bedroom. Like I said, when, when I sold it, I made 30 grand, but that experience was the, oh, this is what I need to be doing. I would wake yep. up in the middle of the night and, and, and work. And I was like, I like the word entrepreneur didn't exist, you know, when we were kids, yep. uh, you know, and so like, but that was the, okay, I know exactly what I want to do. And, and it's this. And, and so, yeah, yep. it, was, it was, it was a huge success in that regard, but yeah, certainly not a financial one. Well, but you made a good point because like, the, I think the definition of entrepreneur is getting confused a bit as like thinking that it's got to look like Mark Zuckerberg, that you got to drop out at X age and make billions of dollars. Whereas like the skills that you honed at this geek squad business, at the learning about uh, unemployment, those that's experience. That's the thing that is part of being entrepreneurial that just goes with time. Um, is that how you looked at the IBM time then too? Was that just like your walk into corporate America and you saw what you didn't want maybe? Well, you know, you know, you mentioned the fact that, you know, having, you know, sort of multiple degrees, I went Emory undergrad and then I was a, a JD MBA in grad school. So, um, you know, I was, I was fortunate that, you know, I did well in school and I could go to Emory and that I could, you know, go and get a, a, a joint law and business degree. And so, um, it was, you know, it's always a balance of like, you know, like giving up the things that you have and the opportunities in front of you and not being, um, you know, stupid about, about turning those down and making sure that it's the right decision. So, you know, in retrospect, I always had some sort of corporate job in between each startup. And a lot of that was, by necessity of just needing to pay the bills. You know, I started the first company, I was single, second, married with no kids, third, married with one kid, fourth, married with two kids, right? So like, you know, the the, the equation changes each time. 
And I went and worked as a lawyer at, at a big law firm in Atlanta for about a year before starting the next startup. And then when that company, um, uh, when we shut down that company, which kind of uh, floundered during the crash of 2008, I took the job at IBM and I never in a million years thought I'd go work for IBM. I mean, you know, but it was it was the worst economy of our lifetime and needed a job. And I got to go move to New York and and, you know, and do this really interesting work. But man, like if you're a startup guy and you go work at IBM, the first thing you do is you start working on shit on the side. So, you know, it didn't take more than a couple of months there before I was like starting different businesses on the side, which, as you might know, was one of those eventually led to StockX and everything else. But but that work and the knowledge, I never would have been able to build what I built at StockX had not been for that and the experience as a consultant at IBM and doing that. So it was kind of the natural progression in terms of both experience and, and knowledge to, to move forward. You know, that's really, so everybody at IBM, is that like the unknown fact that these that these big companies, people are just got little side hustles? That's no, 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 no. Sorry if I, if I miss, misspoke. Anyone who's a, who's a startup guy and goes to work at IBM, the first thing you do is you start working <laughs> on shit on the side, right? So like, yeah, to your point about seeing what you don't want, like I walked in there and you have these guys that have been at IBM for 20 years and 30 years and you're like, holy shit, like, okay, like what am I doing to, and by the way, I love my job and the people I worked with were actually phenomenal, but like there is no nine to five that takes up all of your time, like period. Like it's just, and, and particularly at that time, like I didn't have kids at the beginning of that. So yeah. So that was like all stuff working on the side while I was there. That's, you know, it's funny. I swear, like, I'm not just saying this to you because you're here on my pod, <laughs> but you have a unique story. Like your story has not been replicated in our other pods, right? G, like you, you're, you're 44 years old and you've worked at IBM. You started a, a, your own small business and no one would have imagined, oh, and law degree or a business degree that you, all of this at 44 and also created, you know, within this like new world, one of the more culturally relevant and like volatile and like game-changing businesses it's just really incredible um so the company you started that became StockX when you were at ibm is it campless or yeah. campless yeah campless yeah all right i asked gianni earlier this is how him and i prep ready i was mm -hmm. like gee what do you think it is he's like i don't know let's ask him i'm like good idea good, <laughs> press, good prep good prep <laughs> yeah we'll just ask him um so that was what was the vision for that what what was the idea so I created these different businesses at different times in my life, but I had never created any businesses in sneakers. And that was almost intentionally. I almost intentionally avoided trying to create a business in sneakers because it was such a big part personally, right? I didn't want to create a business that was just an excuse to play with sneakers. And by the way, I probably, I, I applied to a job at Nike like every single year from like 1995 to 2010, right? Like it was to me, like that was the only way to get into the sneaker industry, like I wasn't going to go work at Foot Locker. And so it was either like you go work at Nike or, or, and so, um, it was the, it was the like explosion of the, the sneaker industry, um, in end of 2011, beginning of 2012, uh, all-star weekend in Orlando, galaxy, galaxy foam release, the whole galaxy pack, all of that, you know, and I was living in New York at the time, the whole thing was blowing up. And that was kind of the, I was like, there has got to be a startup. There's got to be some something in the sneaker industry that that I could be working on while I'm at IBM. And so I was doing all this data work at IBM, like any other consultant would be. And I was getting good at, at data work and enjoyed it. And I was like, man, I wonder if I get a hold of some sneaker data 
just to play with my own amusement, just to kind of see what I could do with it because I was doing all this work because the sneaker industry was starting to become, you know, more mainstream. And, um, and at the time there just wasn't a price guide. There, there was no way everything happened on eBay. People would use flight club for historical prices, but like that was it. And so it was really the function of kind of just looking for some more, you know, side work at IBM and I love sneakers and the price guide thing didn't exist and all those things were happening. And it was kind of the, the whole, that, that whole galaxy foam release and everything was going on there sort of like kicked me to be like, all right, like if you're sitting here at IBM, like, what are you doing at night? Like it needs to be something around sneakers because I'd never worked on anything in, in personal passion. None of the other startups were at any way a personal passion. It was just a business opportunity that I thought I saw at a, at a certain time. So this 2010, 11, 12, you're saying, right? Yeah. So what's the sneaker business look like then compared to now? Oh my God. You know, night and day, right? Like, um, there's been three major, um, well, four major shifts in the sneaker, uh, industry and, and culture that we know 1985, your first air Jordans, um, that obviously creates, you know, that starts all of this, uh, 2000 and, or 2000, 99, 2000 eBay, the internet. Now what was a very local thing became a global thing, still a very like underground, but at least global thing where we could buy things all over the world. Uh, 2010, 2011, this is social media. Uh, this is uh, Instagram right after Facebook buys Instagram. And that's what brought all the people into the space, right? Up until this point, well, even today, all sneakerheads ever wanted to do is show off the shoes they have and see what other people are wearing. And Instagram allowed us all to do that at scale globally. And, and you had all these people coming in into it. And like back then, I would get three, four, five calls a week, if not more saying, Hey man, can you help me find those Jordans we used to wear in high school? Right. Fast forward, we'll get to today. I get that. Hey man, can you help me find Jordan rookies and, and stuff like that? But it was, it was people coming into the hobby. And so that really changed. And then brands started using social media to release products and led to um, what I think is the next shift, which is I think StockX in 2016 and then Goat and other businesses like that, that just made all of that more accessible. So at each one of those levels, you're, you're telling the world more about sneakers, making it more acceptable and making it more accessible. And that's what ultimately leads to, to the size and scale that we're at now. Bro, flawlessly answered. Amazing. I feel like at 2010 too, I feel like music artists are really trying to penetrate the sneaker market as well. Like mm -hmm. Jay-Z had his Reebok collab, Kanye Air Yeezy, Louis Vuitton. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and, and we're, we're we're going through the transition at the time of you know the end of the uh, the late '90s and early 2000s when Nike gave a shoe to everybody, and then they they pulled it all the way back, and then you know going into to Galaxy Foam at the time and that release, there was really only three franchise shoes, right? It was it was LeBron, it was KD, uh, and it was Kobe, like, and that was it. And then you had you know Yeezy happening right around the same time, Kanye, you know, obviously couple years later leaves and goes to adidas so you have this convergence of what's going on you know in all of that as well absolutely and again at the highest level we can attribute all that to social media yeah and then also i think with that to your point i mean jay-z's shoe you know looking back on it like jay-z and 50 were kind of in that middle time right yep. like 2004 2005 and for whatever reason jay pulled it back or reebok folded that didn't go but right when music artists really impacted it was also when basketball seekers weren't fashionable anymore yeah so it became like a heavy focus on what travis was collaborating on what kanye was collaborating on like what 
colorway was the one that like or what retro right like that whole thing really got to a whole other level around that point too and did hip-hop just play a major part in it in your opinion it always has right i mean that that's not a that's not a secret it always has but it you know kanye left nike and left the you know nike easy on the table and went to adidas and you know he was obviously most notable being the first non-athlete to have a shoe at at nike once he left and they then saw what happened you know drake got it got a uh shoot a, a deal with jordans and then that opened it up to everything else that was going on right and once that happened and once like that barrier was broke like it's just floodgates right because nike's nike and you know they obviously drive it so you know i mean the reebok shoe from from jay or from 50 were uh, you know important pieces of history but like nowhere near the the sneaker importance um you know when you have shoes like like the easy and stuff and travis scott and that sort of stuff so how does all this data that you've been acquiring at campless turn into StockX? yeah yeah well look you know in a lot of ways we were just really lucky that we were the only ones doing real analytics around the resale market there just wasn't anyone doing it and you know i spent all this time collecting all this data and then building this price guide uh you know it was basically like all of 2012 doing this and in 2013 i like published our first like price guide which is just like a blog and had all these prices right and just like crickets um and you know nobody knew me from a hole in the wall and all it was was numbers on this piece of paper and I was like, all right, well, obviously anyone can just put some numbers on a on a blog. So I was like, all right, I was like, how do I make people understand that like all the work that's going on there? So we created this blog for Campless that we would try to do these like Freakonomics type posts, like, you know, and, and have questions like, are sneakers more like drugs or stocks? Or, you know, whatever we could do to, to make that more interesting by using the data to do that. And it was really like the math and the data was pretty simple. The collection of it was was a bit more complicated, but but once you had the data, it was pretty simple. And then slowly by slowly, you know, like what happened was that very, very small Venn diagram overlap of like sneakerheads and data nerds, like they figured it out and they were like, oh, this is fucking cool. I want to be involved. And I got all these people who started emailing me and, and DMing and saying, hey, man, I love sneakers. I love data. You know, can I can I help? Can I get involved? It also probably didn't hurt that like Moneyball had just come out. And so you had this perspective as well. And I ended up building this like volunteer army. Um, by the time I would sell the company years later to Dan Gilbert, there were 17 people that worked with me at Campless. There was no money. There was no equity. There was no business. It was just people that like liked the project that we were building. And I probably interviewed, I don't know, 200 people to get to those 17, but it was around that small data community. And then it kind of just kept growing out because once people had put faith and validity in the, the numbers and the data, well, then it's just very useful to anybody that is interesting to, to buy or sell shoes. And so it became the default price guide for the resale industry for that time, which is just a, a valuable functional thing. It was free and, and people used it. And, and so, you know, it developed this small little cult following and, and it helped me get, you know, everything else. And I, and I assume that's probably where you kind of got your like, Oh, I, I could do this. Like I can build a business. I can be a real guy and take this because you have 17 people. And when you build an audience and people are coming to your product, it's a very like uh, adrenaline rushing feeling. I mean, that's what you had worked for when you were selling gum and trading cards. So now all of a sudden you're in this, I assume you left IBM, right? And you're running this. 
so I'm going to tell you a crazy story. 2015, I'm in uh, the hotel in Four Seasons in the Bay, I think. And Dan Gilbert's there. The, the Cavs are in town. And I'm sitting with Mav and Rich. And they say to me, oh, right over there, I think Dan's meeting with um, Josh Luber from StockX, right? And I see you sitting over there with Dan Gilbert. And right around that time, Wale, who I was friends with, starts telling me, you know, these guys... Uh, this guy Josh Luber and this guy Dan Dan Gilbert from the Cavs reached out about this stock market for um, sneakers. And I said to Gianni earlier today, like, I do find myself at the forefront of some things, but I also can be man enough to know, like, how unevolved I was when I was thinking about sneakers. And it was only six years ago. Like, I was like, that makes no sense. Like, that can't even be something. So Dan Gilbert calls you. And... What's funny is his reputation as an NBA owner, let's just say in NBA circles because of LeBron and yep. the incident and the letter, et cetera. People may think he's just like oddball, like, you know, a little bit of a, a tough person to get along with. When you first got the call, were you thinking about selling or were you thinking about merging or aligning or, or like, did you have any expectation or knowledge of who Dan was and what this was about? Yeah. First of all, I, I, I remember that that day i'm pretty sure it was the four seasons um and um yeah and well we go there, there's a whole bunch of stories to come off that one but so here's what happened was campus there was no business we didn't make any money i mean we had some ebay affiliate links on the site and there were a couple of bucks that like so i didn't have to come out of my pocket to pay servers but there was no business and so but it, but it had a lot of traction and within certain circles people really liked it so it got me a lot of of meetings and um, I talked to everybody in the sneaker industry, Nike, eBay, Foot Locker, Complex, like foot, like you name it. And there was never really a right fit of who to work with and 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 what to do with this thing. I mean, you know, the, the meetings with Nike, uh, mo actually almost everybody was, you know, this is really cool data. We want to use this in our business to do X, Y, and Z. And I was like, well, no, like I got this idea that you could build a stock market for sneakers around it. And like the look on their face was just like, uh, whatever, you know. Um, and like, that's like, that's not wrong. Like, that's how I'd be looking at it too. If I was Nike, which is like, how do you use it, this data in our business? And, um, and so I get a email from uh, a couple of guys who work with Dan. Uh, this is right before Easter of 2015. And they say, Hey, look, we work with Dan. We're really interested in what you're doing. Can we talk? And, you know, Dan's got no ties to sneakers whatsoever. And I was like, sure. Right. You, you know, you take any call, but at this point I've had the same conversation so many times. I was like, whatever. So I get on the phone with these guys it was the, like, I don't remember any of the conversation. It was the same shit. Like I was like, whatever, I hang up the phone. Then two days later, they emailed me back and they're like, listen, we definitely want to do this business. We definitely want to work with you. We'd like to fly you to Cleveland to go to a game and meet Dan. And I was like, well, the first half of that same, I'm like, whatever. Everybody says they're going to do shit, right? The second half, I'm like, yeah, absolutely. You can fly me again. Like, no problem, right? Like, I'm in Philly at the time. Like, I love, you know, basketball. So I'm like, sweet. Like, I get to go to a game with the owner of the team. Like, I thought that was the whole story. This is the Friday before Easter. And these guys were like, you know, it's short notice. Could he come on Easter Sunday? I was like, I'm Jewish. Let's, let's make this thing happen, right? <laughs> like, let's do it. So, so that was the start. And, and so they flew me out to Cleveland. I, I went down, you know, we uh, watched a game together. After the game, we go back in a room and start talking about what I've been building. And I give all my backstory and all the stuff that I've been doing. And I had this like one piece of paper and it was really simple. There were only three things on it. It was, it was uh, a price guide. That's what Campus was, was a price guide. And then the idea that the price guide could evolve into a sneaker portfolio where I could look at your sneaker collection the same way you look at a stock portfolio, very easy application of data. 
And then the idea was, well, price guy could evolve into stock uh, to portfolios and a portfolio can evolve into a stock market. And it was a really simple piece of paper with three things. And you should take this to all these meetings. And everybody else was just like, whatever. And I took this out and I explained it to Dan and his guys. And they look at me with pure shock. And it doesn't really register to me why. And then one of them takes out a piece of paper and he's like, yeah, we have one of those. Like, that's exactly what we want to build, a stock market for sneakers. And I was like, oh. So like the crazy backstory is like there was maybe one other guy in the whole world that had the exact same idea at the exact same time. And it happens to be, you know, one of the most successful business people in the world. So that was a really crazy thing. And we could talk about how Dan got there, but you know, Dan has no ties to sneakers. So like he was coming at this from a completely different angle, but we ended up at the same place. They found me because of campus and it was like, all right, like this is, you know, some form of of fate or whatever. I was like, let's do it. So two things that you doubted for a second. Were you like, holy shit, this guy stole my idea? No, I, you know, one of the things I, I learned early on, um, you know, through different entrepreneurial, you know, just life is that ideas are worthless. Like execution is the only thing that matters. Uh, you know, you never, never worry about talking to anybody about everything. Never take an NDA. Like ideas are worthless. So, um, you know, I, I wasn't. Uh, yeah, I, I wasn't worried about it at all. Yeah. And then second of all, which um, I talk about a lot, had a pretty powerful conversation with KD about this yesterday as it relates to people we do business with moving forward in general, is energy, right? Like you sit down and maybe Dan, like I said, doesn't have this reputation totally like no one has any idea if it's real. It's like sports mm-hmm. media, right? Yeah. Um, but did you have this like, all right, I could, beyond the fact you shared this concept, you know, you were an entrepreneur and now was he aggressively or not aggressively, but was he laying down a vision and telling you he wanted to buy you or buy Campless or start this company? How did that whole next phase go into becoming like one? Yeah. Well, look, I, uh, a couple of things. So first of all, yeah, like Dan absolutely, you know, I mean, the decision and, and the letter and all that will will live forever. And um, and, you know, coming into this, that was certainly the thing that I was most familiar with, you know, coming into, I knew about Quicken Loans and the Cavs. Um, and so I didn't really know what it was going to be like, but, you know, we went to the game and it was kind of a chilly day and I was wearing a skull cap and I walked into the owner's room with Dan and I was still wearing the skull cap. And the first thing he ever said to me ever was, I bet you're the only guy at IBM that wears a hat like that. And I was like, I was like, yeah. You know, and you know, what was really interesting, and I could say a lot about Dan, um, and uh, and uh, there's been a lot that we could never have done this without him, and and certainly a lot of a lot of resources. But above and beyond, more than anything else, in terms of building StockX, the culture of StockX, and everything else, was he was was just absolutely vigilant about like being yourself. Like I remember the first time we did an interview together on like CNN, and I was like, hey, do you want me to like take off my hat? And he's like. He's like, do you want me to fire you? He's like, no, he's like, you be yourself. Like fucking, you know? And I was like, all right. I was like, nice. I was like, you know, and like that carried through like all of StockX to just be like, look, even though we we sat right outside of his office and you have Quicken Loans and you have all this, you know, like corporate stuff, he was like, you know, to kind of be yourself. And and the even the initial interactions with him were very much like that, where, you know, Dan is, is a really great, you know, is a really great person. And like all super successful, super like, um, you know, good people at that level. Like when you're with him, you know, he makes you feel like you're the only one that matters. And, and yep. it's just that. And, I, and I've noticed that like about almost everybody at that level, that's really good. Like they have an ability to do that. No, I, I agree with you on that. So 
like what you don't have to tell me the numbers so i would love you if you did but Mm -hmm. what what was the structure like so what are you now forming so you had camp less and they had this idea and money right yeah what was the next step so they had actually already started a company and so what happened was that dan dan was coming at this idea dan had always sort of had this fascination around markets and efficiencies of markets and had always had this idea that you could buy or sell anything the same way the stock market works and he was tuned in to sneakers too at his time, his 15-year-old son who was buying and selling sneakers on eBay, like every other 15-year-old, and said, you know what, that's a pretty crappy market leader. That's where we should start this stock market of things idea. And so he put together a team. Uh, There's four guys that were a really good startup team that had been working uh, in Detroit on some other stuff. That business hadn't worked out, but they didn't like the team. And so I reached out to those guys and said, listen, I have this idea. I want to build a stock market for sneakers. None of those guys know shit about sneakers, but if Dan's like, I want to build a business with you, then you say, yeah. So they had started working on it, but they got a couple of weeks into it and realized, well, crap, we need a sneaker guy, right? Who's a sneaker guy that's going to help us on this. So they go out, they do some research, they find campus, they find me. And so when we come together, you know, I am like explaining this, building this very much from the ground up in sneaker culture around. I'm like, this would be so perfect for sneakers. It worked just like this. And Dan's like, no, nah. he's like, this should be how the whole world works. This should be like the future of all e-commerce. And I was like, hell yeah, I'm on board with that. Like, let's go build that, right? And so I sold Campless, which was really, I mean, it was an aqua hire, right? Like we had we had 40,000 followers on, on Twitter. We had a whole bunch of data, but there was no business there. And and so I sold it to Dan for, you know, it was it was okay. It wasn't a, a huge sale, but you know, it was more than it was more than a million dollars. And uh, and then we took that as the data layer to turn it into StockX as the marketplace. And so he had four guys that were there. So I was employee number five. I came in as a CEO. The five of us all had equity in the company. Dan was funding it. And then we were off to, to go do that. All right. So here's the fun part. Cause like, that's the dream. It's no, you know, this now is the parallel to like my Mark Zuckerberg thing is when you build something and while it's four years in like, the grand scheme of things, such a short time, you built this monster. So tell us how the like the wheels start moving and when you started seeing this thing picking up and what some of those moments that were like the tide turned. Yeah. So from day one, we were all 100% bought in on the model, on the theory that you should be able to use the way the stock market works, which has been the most efficient form of commerce for 150 years. Um, to buy and sell other products. So like theory was pretty good. Uh, and the question was, could we execute that? Could we build a website that and an app that 14-year-old kids could buy or sell sneakers without having to teach them how the stock market works? So like that was the challenge. And I didn't have to convince people to buy sneakers, right? So like we were super fortunate through all stock eggs. I don't have to convince anyone to buy, you know, Jordans or Yeezys or Katie's or Supremes or, or Rolex or, or like like I got, that's an easy job. The question is, can you make the product? And, um, but like anything, like a marketplace is, is the hardest business in, in the internet. Cause you have this chicken and the egg problem where you got to get buyers, you got to get sellers and, and to do that. So it's this very slow grind to, to get a little of each while you're slowly building liquidity. But once you hit a certain inflection point, you can really see, and it, it really takes off. And so for us, the first really big moment was uh, September of 2016. So we launched in February of 2016. And in September of 2016 was the first big Jordan release after we launched. It was the, it was the bread ones. It was, you know, Jordan one, the black and red. It was the first re-release of that shoe in a long time. And 
because it was a release, you have a lot of liquidity in the market at the same time. And that's what a stock market needs. That's what any marketplace needs. You need a lot of liquidity to, to be able to bring that spread close, to be able to have you know, buyers and sellers at the same time. And prior to that day, we were selling about, I think it was like maybe about 60, 70 sales a day. And we've been just slowly grinding up one to two to five to 10, you know, just this very, very, and then, and that day we did 301. And I remember uh, Greg Schwartz, who's the COO and, and kind of third co-founder, Dan and I, Greg and I were like literally like refreshing our phone like every four seconds all day, like watching the numbers come in. And it was just like, holy crap, like I think this business is going to work. Right. And it was and it was like everything around the theory coming together at once, which was that like if there is liquidity, that this should be the best way to buy or sell stuff. And that was kind of the first moment they're like, okay, like there's definitely something here. By the way, nowhere near what it became, but just that like this model should work to be able to buy sneakers. In addition to the theory that obviously sound, I feel like the marketplace itself was also booming because, I mean, 2015, Kanye releases the Turtle Dove. No one can get it. Every every sneaker consumer is frustrated with not being able to get the shoes they want. So I think the timing is also a really it's nice really, It's a really good point, right? Because, I, you know, like I said, 2012 Instagram-ish is when this thing starts, but like that hype was at fever pitch by the time that he was releasing the first Yeezys and we had all-star weekend in New York and it was freezing and, and, and Nike had a couple shoes and you know, the Yeezys there and the fashion show and you've all this happening at the same time. Um, and so, yeah, everything was like, you needed this release valve of access to product that wasn't there. Um, you know, and it was still happening on eBay, but it was like, it was just a complete shit show. Um, I remember some of the early data that we found at, at one point, there was like over 70% of, of Yeezys on eBay were fake. Um, you know, when we launched StockX. Yeah, yeah, I actually wanted to get into that. Sorry to cut you off, but no, like no. you've been renowned for your verification process. So I kind of would like to know about that a bit. Yeah, well, you know, I got there and Dan and Greg had already decided that like, we want to physically authenticate every pair of shoes. And I was like, that sounds pretty fucking complicated. I was like, do we really want to do that? Like, that sounds like a lot of operational work. And Dan goes, and, and in, in the nice way possible, he goes, he goes, you know what was complicated? He goes, it was complicated when we had to get 50 different states, regulatory bodies to approve us for mortgages and put that all online in one place. He goes, that was complicated. He goes, this is some guys in a warehouse that we will train and we will build a process and we will win this. <laughs> and I was like, bet. I was like, all right, let, you know, let's do that. And the, the reason that we were doing it though is, look, there, there is a, ton of value in knowing you're going to get a fake uh, a real shoe obviously and the fact that you know e ebay was flooded with fakes all of that but what we figured out early on was to build this model to build the, the the stock market of things we had to standardize that product you have to and like the shortcut is like you have to be able to sell this product off of a stock photo and and you have to have a single product page. Like that's the key to all of this is one single product page. You go to eBay, you search for a Yeezy Turtle Dove, you get a thousand listings. You go to StockX, there's one page where that Turtle Dove is, and everything happens at that one page. That's what creates efficiency. That's what that's what creates the whole business. But to do that, you have to standardize that, and that means we can only sell brand new shoes, and that means that we have to make sure that they are real. And so we realized quickly that we had to do that. And even though the the not getting a fake shoe is what everybody sees, and obviously there's value, the real value is uh, is enabling the model, and the model is, is the reason that, that we are where we are.
So what was the first big fundraise? Was that right when you guys partnered up? Did Dan fund it or did you have to go out and get outside funding as well? No, Dan put in a couple million. I forget the exact number to, um, to, you know, to just get us going. And, um, and then in the winter of 16, we uh, did a, a, you know, high profile strategic round and, and it was completely organic. What happened was um, we were in a meeting and it somehow came up that Mark Wahlberg wears a lot of Jordans. And Dan goes, oh, well, I know Mark. And like an hour later, I'm on an email chain with Dan and Mark. And three days later, I'm at Mark's house in California, like going through his sneaker closet. And I'm like, <laughs> what kind of fucking life am I leading now? Like, what is going on? Um, and, you know, and the greatest, you know, value that we could give to Mark, who, you know, who's happy to help. He's done a bunch of business with Dan. And, and Dan's like, well, we should, you know, we should let Mark invest. And I was like, yeah. I was like, yeah. And then like, then we're like, well, who else should we do? And then, you know, it kind of spawned from there. So we put together that first round. It was Mark, uh, Eminem, uh, Scooter, um, uh, Drake, um, you know, I'm like blanking and all that, like, you know, also a lot of like um, other, like Tim Armstrong and, and Ted Leonsis. And, and so it was, it was just, it was round. It was all, you know, big names, small checks. Uh, and that was massively important as, as we were just, cause we need, just needed to build liquidity. So every tweet helped every, you know, so that was, that was the first time we actually raised any outside money. And we actually thought we were never going to go and raise outside money after that, because we have Dan as a founder. And so why give up that equity? Why give up that control? But we had been doing so well by the end of 2017 and we'd have so many VCs approaching us that that was the point we decided that we would explore that. And we were fortunate to have, you know, the top tier VCs in the world interested in us. And you look at just the additional value of having people like that on your cap table. And so that's when we did our first outside round and that was Google Ventures and Battery. Um, and that was what, like a $40 million round in um, at the end of 2017. So did, did it feel good, this new role or would, was it like, cause when your business grows, right? And you go from, the dorm room in quotes, right? To this new world. Were you trying to kind of figure out where you were best skilled? Like, did you like operating a company? Were you still a product guy and an idea guy? Or how did that kind of shift in running a bigger business now get for you? And and also, I think to add to that, having one kid, I think you said at that point when you started StockX and you're married and you moved to Detroit, like, was there a conversation like when you're leaving Mark Wahlberg's house with with the wife, like this, things are about to turn up a little bit now for the next few years. Like we're about to go on a little bit of a ride. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of kind of extraordinary moments like that, but you're, you're hitting on like, this is probably the, the single most important like thing. If anyone is wants to take something out of this, right. Is like understanding your role in transition in hyper growth. I saw so many different scenarios play out as we grew some people that grew phenomenally with the company and moved into different roles, other people who just flamed out horribly and just could not deal with the change, um, and others who we had to get rid of because they couldn't handle it because it's way different when you're a billion-dollar company than when you're you know, five guys sitting outside of Dan's office. Uh, I'm a startup guy, and, and I know that, and I um, was so lucky that, that Greg, our COO, also a startup guy, but we have perfectly complementary skills, like almost in every way. And, and I didn't know him before that. Like he was coming in from Dan's team, like could have gone the exact opposite way. And so I think more so than anything to our success is our relationship, particularly for those first three years in that 
he didn't want to do anything public. He's not, he doesn't like public speaking. He's fine with me being out there going to Mark's house. He's, you know, and, and letting me do all the creative part and all that. And he's a great product guy and digital marketing and like in the weeds and great at managing people and managing the team. And so it was a really great like mix for, for a long time. And then as we grew, I saw the writing on the wall at the beginning of 2018, as we were, as we were moving towards what would eventually be uh, our billion dollar round that, I was like, holy crap. I was like, I definitely don't want to be a public company CEO. Right. I was like, all right. So, and then at that point we started moving and, and I really instituted, initiated the process that would eventually replace myself as CEO the summer of 2019. Um, and, you know, and move into a much more sort of creative, I, the role was essentially like head of innovation, but like, I'm a startup guy, like that is not at all where I want to be. And, um, and, that like anyone going through like growth, that's like the, the hardest thing. It's managing people through that yourself and everybody else about, yeah. about how you go through that growth. So when you're leaving this company, I mean, that's got to be emotional for you, right? It's, you know, it's your baby or you're, you're a co-parent. Oh yeah. Um, and, uh, but you're, you're, it sounds like your, your self-awareness is so intact that that you knew you had to leave. So was it a mixed emotion and, or, and a little bit of excitement as well? So I, um, I replaced myself as CEO in the summer of 19. And, um, at, but right at the end of 2018 is when we got tuned into to trading cards and we then decided to add trading cards to the site. And so all 2019 and most of 2020, I was really spending a lot of time trying to drive the trading card business at StockX, getting deep into that space, both personally buying a lot, but also um, driving it. And there was so, it was so clear, there was so much opportunity in the trading card space. And it was so clear, there was so much similarity between trading cards, right, even right now today, and sneakers back in 2012, 2013. And, you know, I spent a lot of 2020 banging my head against the wall, the beginning of 2020, banging my head against the wall, trying to do a lot of these very entrepreneurial things and in, in the in in an environment that just doesn't take that anymore and and the and and rightfully so like there's a budget process and there's there's you know uh, and people have you know there's all sorts of other other people to consider and so i came to the realization probably around like may of 2020 that i was like hold on i was like you know what just because i started this company doesn't mean that i need to stay here and there was so much opportunity in trading cards that i was like all right i was like i actually think i know what the play is there. And it had been about 18 months, like deep in the space every day, thinking about it until I figured out what I thought the play was. And then I started planning my transition. And at that point, I was so excited to be moving on. I didn't have any emotion until the last day. And like, obviously it's Zoom and we had a, like a farewell thing for me and, and everybody got on uh, uh, all company Zoom and people were everyone was just saying stuff about me and I just broke down like hysterically crying in front of everyone. But, um, you know, and so like it all kind of comes there and it's still emotional to not be there. And I, and I see some of the stuff going on, but like, I'm a startup guy. Like I am infinitely happier right now where I am, where it's right. I mean, it's me and one other guy right now, basically like driving, yep. driving like the next business forward. And like, I love it. Yep. Well, but listen, you also, you have StockX next to your name. You know, it's part of your legacy. When you left um, officially, like in May, just to give us some perspective of what you did and how incredible it was, what was the size of the company at this point? Yeah. What is the size of the company? Yeah. Well, I left in I left in September. Um, the StockX did around uh, almost right around then. Uh, they valued it at two point seven five billion. 
Um, it, uh, you know, they've been they've been vocal at, at that the plan is to go public uh, sometime soon. Um, you know, internally, I think the value of that is is already well past that. Um, there's about I don't know 1,100 people. You know, offices. I forget how many authentication centers we have now. Nine, ten, something like that. You know, all over the world. Um, it's um, it's a huge it's a huge company, and it's going to keep getting bigger. And and it's still super early in the overall life cycle of the company. We grew so fast, and there was so much going on that there's like day zero like e-commerce functionality that any other business would have. That like we don't have gift cards. Right. Like some of the most basic stuff <laughs> that, you know, and, and it's just because we grew so fast and you have yeah. to prioritize like what we've we're only coming up on one year right now of having a full leadership team. Like we didn't start hiring other uh, other like C-suite leaders until, you know, until last year. So like it's just getting started. And, and so it's it's pretty awesome to see where it goes. But like I am really happy right here. And and, you know, to be fully transparent, like they keep going and it will make me and my family wealthier. And that's awesome. Uh, but like, like I'm good. Like we're working yeah. where I'm at. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but like you said, you're a, you're a founder, you're a startup guy. And if you want gift cards, like you want to make them by Friday. And the right, exactly. <laughs> and and the to I your point, StockX grew so fast that you have competitors and flight club going out of business. And then Nike trying to copy you with sneakers. Like, how does that feel? Yeah. Yeah, well, but what everybody um, missed in all the different copying attempts, even Goat, which I think is great, and I think they've built a really great business. I know they have, and they're, you know, I don't know what the numbers are anymore, but like, let's say that Goat is 60% of size of StockX, and there's no one else that's even close. They've done a lot of things different, but the one thing they have the same is they have a single product page, and they authenticate and st to be able to standardize to get to that single product page. And in my mind, everything else that we've done different from them, everything on the brand and the content and the partners and execution, all of that is the other 40%. And 60% of it is just the single product page model. That is what like everyone missed. Like eBay just added, you know, they authenticate shoes, right? And and they've been blanketing the world with, with advertisements for the last like three months around that. That's fine. Like it totally misses the point that like the, it, the single product page model, like that's what it is. And you can't, you can't create that overnight. eBay will never get to do that because they'd have to redesign their entire business, right? Their entire website. So, you know, it's, it's flattering to see the competitors, but like most people still don't get like what the real business is at StockX. And that's a good thing for StockX, right? So, you know, we'll, we'll keep building that moat until other people figure it out. So, you know, I know now also, and this is how you and I got to know each other. So you leave, you're in the trading card world and we've done a handful of trading card pod so i'm going to spare our listeners the intricacies of that business again but as a like time in our world right for trading cards nft crypto just all of this like disruption um around sports do you see that sneakers like, doesn't it feel like the sneaker business is almost more like of a traditional business now it feels like an older school model because of all these kind of new disruptive things that are happening in the business. So where do sneakers now play in the trading card space, in the NFT space, in the digital art? Like how does that transition into this new world? You know, I, I gotta say, Richard, I'm glad you said it and not me, uh, at least start. It's so true. Like 
I'm so uninspired by sneakers these days. Like I love sneakers and I'm not selling my sneakers and I'm like, you know, and I still buy sneakers, but like, I'm so uninspired by the the business and the, the industry compared to how exciting, you know, forget NFTs and all the stuff going there, which is just a whole nother, but even just like what's happening in trading cards and what trading cards mean to, because it's, it's trading cards sits at the intersection of culture and commerce where you have this like absolutely extraordinary product that involves mo- the most important people in the world and it's a financial asset and it's a form of gambling like it's just it's extraordinary i was on a podcast um that you mentioned uh pj tucker earlier i was on a podcast uh pj tucker and jared jeffries asked me to go on a clubhouse with them and it was like a sneaker thing and they they went around and they said like uh something like what's the last pair of shoes you bought and i i i was like uh I don't buy sneakers anymore. I, I just buy trading cards, you know? Uh, yeah, it's, it does feel like that way, but, but it's, it's really not, it's not about, that's not a, a knock on sneakers as much as how exciting the, the, all the rest of it is. But I mean, a, a digital sneaker, uh, a trading card, you know, the tops had their sneaker collection of some sorry, sort. So- sorry. Let me cut you off on that. So from, from the day we launched, Greg was like, we should be doing digital sneakers concurrently with physical sneakers. And every time we had that conversation, it was like, yeah, but we have to get licenses from Nike and Adidas to do that. And we're like, all right, well, we're not even going to try that. We're not even going to go down that path. And that becomes, um, that that's the high level thesis to all the reasons of why the vision that, that we had for StockX can only reach so far because ultimately Nike and Adidas are Nike and Adidas and they have way more of their business that is not the very important resale sneaker market and the culture around it. They have all this other stuff. Um, and it's a very old school, you know, business and it's manufacturing and distribution, all that trading cards. And then in particular NFTs and everything else like that, like you're going to have all the manufacturers tops and, and Panini and everyone else, everyone else is going to be on board around like how this whole ecosystem should work together. And, and it'll be just remarkably yep. different. And it's around that. And so, so of all the entry points in this business right now, and I know you're collecting, but you, you, you launched a fund. Tell me a bit about that. And obviously, thank you again for allowing us the opportunity to invest in it, because no. what I'm realizing now is that there's so many levels to the skill of collecting and, you know, people that are asking me, and I feel like it's this race. And if someone asks you, you got to say like, yo, just jump on, man, because I can't explain to you where I'm at. There's like 8,000 runners in front of me. I just got to keep figuring my way out in this right now. But you chose to do a fund. What's the philosophy with that? The, the, the runner analogy is really good. That's really apt. That's exactly, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, don't worry about the fact that these guys are in front of you. Like there's still so much room to, gr- to grow in, in front of us. I started personally buying cards again the summer of 19. You know, I, I have same story. I collected cards as a kid. You know, I, I put them under my parents, you know, basement when I went away to college and, and hadn't looked at them. Um, and I'm lucky that that I started buying back then. I started buying back then when, you know, Katie Topps Chrome 10s were 400 bucks, right? Like 400 bucks, right? You know, I was buying I was buying refractors for like, like 1,500. What are they at? 55,000, right? So... You know, like I, I'm just I'm lucky that that I got in a little bit earlier than, than most. And, um, you know, I'm working on a bunch of different businesses, but but the the fund and, and the management um, company, which is called it's called um, Six Forks, um, is it's a financial services firm for trading cards. And the idea was purely born out of 
I just physically couldn't buy any more cards myself. It was like, the, I saw the cards. Um, I'd been buying so much myself and so many people were saying, hey man, can you help me buy cards? Can I give you 50 grand? Can I give you hundred grand? Can you help me buy a collection? And I was doing that for some friends and those conversations then started to turn to, hey, can I give you hundred grand to buy me a collection? But you know, I don't really want to like deal with it. Can you hold it for me and then help me sell it? And I was like, no, no, what are you talking? And I was like, hold on. I was like, that's a pretty like obvious business. And so it was really just kind of an evolution of that, of like, of kind of no brand. And by the way, from that, from the day that I got back in the hobby in like 2018, every smart person in the hobby had always said, well, of course there should be baseball card, you know, trading, you know, funds. And so it was just kind of a, 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 I was like, well, hold on, we could put this together. And so it was a very organic process around that. And the fact that we still think it's so early in the overall life cycle that, I mean, obviously it's been, right now paying 55 grand for, for a KD refractor 10 is, is a steep price, but I still, I think that's a half million dollar card in five years, right? I, I think that's a steal compared to where it's at in five years. So you think that the iconic cards will separate themselves a bit and then they'll always be the more trendier cards that will go up and down in value, but a KD, a LeBron, a Kobe, um, an MJ, obviously those yep. cards will continue to go up in value. Yep. And that's why we've seen such a big run on those cards in the last three months, as we now have not only our fund, but you have you have other funds, but you have just more and more, um, you know, just logical, smart people with money coming into it that can afford the more expensive cards and understand that, look, I could buy a Zion, but like there's a lot of risk there, right, as an investment. But like, there's no risk buying a LeBron. There's no risk buying a KD. Those guys are playing, but it doesn't matter. They retire tomorrow. Their careers have been written. Their first battle all famous. Like it doesn't matter, and um, and that's like why like you're gonna you have this. But just keep in mind that even though we've had this big run up, and even though some of these numbers are absolutely extraordinary, there's still so many people that are not yet in trading cards that will come, and that this is what drew. This is how sneakers grew in in 2012. Was just people. We're maybe in the fourth inning, fifth inning max in terms of people coming into this. And every day you have more and more. And when you get to that, then you'll get to where that, that equilibrium is. And we're going to, for the next, I don't know, 12 to 24 months, like it's still going to be a pretty steep like uh, rise in prices as these people come in. So like comparative to um, let's say art, right? You don't think that there is some element of a ceiling to, the collecting side of it, not the business side of it, but the collecting side of it. Yeah, that's a, I, I like that. Um, I like that point and that issue to, to look at I say, all right, well, mathematically, can a KD refractor 10 be a half a million dollars? Absolutely. No question at all. Is there some sort of artificial ceiling that says that collectors get to a certain point, hundred grand, 150 grand. And you know what? Like it just, it doesn't feel right that this many cards are 150 grand. And then, you know, they just start putting their money elsewhere. Maybe like that, that could happen. Um, but I think what happens is for those truly iconic cards, um, it's like your truly iconic works of art, right? Like a Picasso is a Picasso and whatever you pay for it today, like you know, that's just going to be worth a whole lot more tomorrow and just the scarcity element of it. And, you know, I mean, th this is supply and demand at its most, most basic, right? This is econ 101. And there are just so few of those cards like a LeBron tops Chrome 10, right? Is, you know, it, it was up to almost 50. It's down to like 35,000 right now, but there's only 2000 of them that exist in the whole world. 
Like everyone's going to want a LeBron rookie when they come in there and they're all going to want the best one. So like, that's kind of how I look at it. There may be some artificial things, but I just think there's so much money. And then you have, you know, you have funds, you have professional investors and you just have people with a lot of money. Yep. So do, so do you, do you ever want to run a big business again? Or do you think that the, the idea of the fund and collecting allows you to like stay nimble and be in this, this heavenly sneaker room and trading card room you built for yourself? No, I, no, I'm working on, on something that's, uh, it's a, a more real business. I mean, the funds a business, but it's, you know, it's a fund. Um, and, um, and it might be pretty big, but I think that, I think that if, if we end up in that situation again, I now know how to be the CEO of a really big company and have the right people around me and, and do, as opposed to, um, you know, I, I never made the decisions at StockX. You know, I was the CEO, but like Dan owned the business and Dan was a primary owner and it was just, it was different. Um, and so I, I could do that, but only if it's sort of the way that I, that I want to, I want to run it. And by the way, that would take having an outstanding, you know, operator next to me. And kind of like, if you look at like, to use like, you know, like Zuckerberg and, and Cheryl, where you have somebody where, where I could run it like that. And that's kind of what I'm trying to put together right now. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see where we get there. Um, uh, that's exciting. I hope we see that one too. Mm-hmm. I hope I can see that one too. Thanks, man. Uh, so, man, Gianni, I think the only thing I, I'd like to know, maybe just let's talk sneakers for one second before we let you go. This has been really incredible. Mm-hmm. Like, I definitely think from an entrepreneurial standpoint, executive standpoint, there's a lot to learn. I learned a lot about your journey in general. I think, like you said, from a trade, the trading card business feels different. It, fe- it if there is something that may not have a ceiling that's in our view right now, it could be that. Whereas, I mean, I don't know if sneakers has a ceiling necessarily, but I'm sure the 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 levels of growth do you still feel like can get as high as they once were, or no? Well, the the industry can, but prices don't, right? Yeah. And, and that's the the difference. Sneakers are not investable assets. People make money buying and selling, and some are worth a lot of money, but they're still just rubber and leather and glue. So, like, it's not a long-term asset to hold. Um, and so, yeah, we can keep selling more sneakers, and more people can want to buy them, and the industry can grow. Um, but, but it's not like you know, you're not looking at that as as an investment. Like, what did I think a you know a Katie refractor can be a half million dollars? Like, no, like that's not how you look at sneakers. But yeah. the industry can still go a long way as more and more people choose to buy certain shoes. Yeah, facts. Well, as you know, like it's the storytelling around the shoe that makes the shoe so desirable. And so like it kills me to hear you say that sneakers are boring you right now because facts like there have just it's been the past two years. People just want to collab. Let's collab with this, you know, Nike collab with this, this collab with this. So it's getting kind of stale. But and specifically, why is it boring you? Well, all right. So. again, it's not nothing about sneakers as much as it's just my excitement for trading cards. But I will say every now and then, like, um, you know, the, like the Nike clot, you know, um, kiss of death, you know, just got, you know, re-released and and Edison sent me a pair and I was super excited to get that. I was like, you know, I've been waiting 15 years to to get that. So I still get a little, you know, uh, you know, in my, in my sneaker, you know, world and, and get excited about that sort of stuff. But yeah, I mean, it's just about, you know, trading cards are just, yeah, it's just, it's just, you hit such an important point on, yes, like there, it's about the story of the sneakers and the stuff that's going on, but there's a reason why there's never been any really good content for sneakers. And I don't mean like the blogs, but like 
from the day we started this, people had been kicking the tires on creating, you know, TV shows and movies and documentaries and, and all different types of shows uh, around sneakers. And everybody got into it and realized that you can only talk about the shoes so much that interesting, like the thing that's interesting are people. And, you know, and, and people, you know, people are, are, tell stories and people have stories and shoes only go so far. And that's why we've never seen anything great in there. Whereas like trading cards are about those people. And this, these are the most important people in our, in our world. Um, and which by the way, side note, like I think that non-sport cards and all the other, uh, you know, people that they make cards of is going to be the next, you know, absolutely, you know, extraordinary thing. And to me, like, that's really exciting to see where, where that stuff goes. By the way, I, I'll show the one trading card I have. Uh, this is my favorite card. I swear to God, this is an Abraham Lincoln rookie card. Wow. That, uh, and it's PSA graded. Like it's it's some set from 1880 that someone hand drew, drew some like cards of uh, of some presidents. And obviously I was going to buy Lincoln, right? And, but it was like an Abraham Lincoln rookie card for like $500. So I'm like, well, clearly I'm buying that. That's so, crazy. Um, that's well, fire. Yeah. I just bought some uh, Serena. I'm getting into tennis cards now. You feel big on that? Oh, yeah. I mean, they've obviously, you know, caught up um to where it's at but for a while tennis was dirt cheap i mean you know obviously it's it's still cheap relative to the rest of it and the important thing on tennis is like serena federer nadal agassi sampras icons they're as iconic as any athlete ever in any sport right so yeah yeah, well uh, well, that's how that's how i'm looking at tennis like i'm i would imagine the prices have gone up since the summer and, and i'm not early on it but when i look at the icons in basketball right and then you think about okay lebron KD, Kobe, maybe Steph. Um, well, definitely Steph, but I don't know how yep. the card market will be. But icons don't come around. It's not like Zion and Luca are for sure icons, right? Or yep. the Greek freak is a for sure icon. Then you need the intangible. You need the narrative, the story, like Gianni was saying about sneakers. So then you got to go look at the other sports. And while basketball is the biggest, then it's like, all right, Mahomes, Brady, mm-hmm. et cetera, Serena, Roger Federer, Agassi Sampras, et cetera. I mean, does that just go for every sport? Now, I mean, the thing is, though, baseball, where it all started, has got to have a major resurgence in it. It has to be. Do you think so? There's a ton of money in in baseball. Um, the What happens is that there's so much pull out of it. And just globally, no one really cares about baseball or football outside of the U.S., right? So that's why NBA has so much bigger. That's why soccer cards are going through the roof right now, right? That's even part of tennis's tennis, research yeah. and tennis being a, being a global sport. But, you know, like that'll still happen. But I don't think there's too many pockets of unknown in sports anymore. But I do think that, like, you're going to see cards of of Kanye and Drake and Pharrell and, and you know, Virgil. And, and like, you're going to have trading cards for every niche of life. Um, you know that exists. You have you have cards for architects and so I got you know like it just everything. I'm not I'm not yeah. buying on that. You know why? Because there's there's still gonna. I mean, listen, Virgil, yes, Pharrell, mm-hmm. Jay Z. I mean, these are figures that like bring that same emotion out in you, right? So there's yep. some, but I I think it's it's just the iconic. I think it's what can transfer from sports to other verticals would just be the icons you're not going to well, be like- well but that's what'll be really valuable but you'll still make a whole set like just like there's a lebron card there's an alex crusoe card like yeah you know like so you'll still make that set and you'll have you know the other the other people and and in the same way like you'll have the up and coming you know rap stars that are there and maybe they hit maybe they don't but you know like i just i just see like it's it's pretty clear um that that's kind of where it's moving we'll see how 
it it happens. But um, you know, there there are cards, there have been cards of non-sport people over the years. There's a you know, uh, there's like a Kanye card uh, from a Topps card from 2011. There's a Beyonce card from 2007. Like, but you have these one-off things here and there, and people are starting to find them. And they're starting to become valuable. Joe Rogan's UFC announcer card is like through the roof, right? Yeah. Like same thing. So, but I mean, the best example of this is obviously the Rocks card, right? You, you saw the you know the Dwayne Johnson uh, yeah. University of Miami football card. Right. And, you know, for anyone who doesn't know, like that's a card that was made in 1994 for the University of Miami football team. Dwayne Johnson, 30 PSA 10s. It was three grand over the summer. It was 15 grand in December. It was 45 grand three weeks ago. It was 90 grand last week. And I can't imagine you could even find it for less than 100 grand right now. And that's obviously around because of Dwayne Johnson being the biggest you know movie star in the world. Not about college yep. football. So. As these numbers get even stupider, there's going to be a lot of rights issues and combos and yeah um and a lot of it has happened like bubbling as it relates to jersey sales and trading cards and likeness etc but seeing these top shot numbers and like the magnitude of these sales and even seeing like a ja morant next to it and knowing he's still on his rookie deal and then hearing these like six figure purchases of a highlight you know it's a conversation it, all it is though like you said is the liquidity around this, the opportunity, all of it is incredible right now. Yeah, well, and that's a whole nother podcast. So we won't go down the top shot and NFT, uh, you know, rabbit hole. But I will say that I think they are completely different from trading cards and everything else we've talked about. I'm not saying whether that's good or bad. And, and I certainly think NFTs as a thing are here to stay, but it's just a completely different thing. And it looks and feels a lot and people conflate them, but like it's just completely different. All right. Well, we will save that for the next one. Um, I appreciate you, bro. This was awesome. Thank you so Thanks, much ben. for uh, this was coming. Sick, bro. Thanks summer. for having me. It was oh. awesome. Thank you very much, both of you. So, G. You already know. That was pretty incredible. He's the man, bro. Sneaker God. Yeah, and also, like, really knows what he likes to do. Like, he wants to stay in his pocket. Very aware of himself, for sure. It's important as a leader. Yep, it is. He's still going to get a, um, a nice little... Uh, Nice little, uh, nice little bag. bag when that IPOs. When that IP go, IPO goes. IP go. When that IP, I like that. When that IP goes. IP go, Mahomes. <laughs> All right, man. Well, thank you everybody for listening. Please, man, subscribe. Keep listening. Support us, bro. We we bringing good gems to the table. So uh, thank you everybody and Gianni. I'll see you on the other side. I'll see you later, bro. Peace.